Are you that weirdo that brings up a 42-year-old missing persons case at happy hour? Well, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to Happy Hour Gets Weird. Hi, welcome back this week. Hi, guys. Or welcome. Or welcome. If you're new here. I'm Cassie. I'm Tiffany. And this is Happy Hour Gets Gets Weird. Weird. We're a podcast where we talk about weird shit and drink good shit. Yes, exactly. I love that. So, uh, and we are back again this week with a missing persons case. Another true crime. Another true crime. And this week we decided to, um, I've kind of always been a fan of martinis, dirty martinis. So I was like, hey, why don't we just go wild and have a dirty martini? So we made dirty martinis, and that's what we're sipping on this episode, and they are delicious. Delicious, salty, yummy, strong, amazing. Yes, I'm going to swell three times my normal size uh, by tomorrow morning, but it is worth it. There is a lot of olive juice in these. Yeah. And if you're interested in our recipe, find us on Instagram. Yeah, we always post our picture, drink pictures, and our recipes on Instagram. Happy Hour Gets Weird Pod is our handle. Also on Twitter. I think you could just search us on Twitter, correct? Yes. I don't really understand the Twitter handle versus name. I don't really understand that yet. Don't ask me about Twitter. I have no idea. Okay. This is my first rodeo of Twitter. (laughs) Okay, perfect. Before we get started, I owe you and our listeners a small apology. Oh, I love apologies. Okay. Oh, well, sip your martini and get ready because I'm going to lay one on you. Okay. Last week, I totally made fun of you for saying Juan Corona's brother's name wrong. Yeah. But you were actually correct. Oh my I, Oh my gosh. I love these you kind of apologies. You revel in this. Yeah. This is, yes, you were correct. And I said his name wrong the entire episode. So <laughs> slash that and reverse it. If you listen to our Juan Corona episode, I think I also called him killer instead of murderer in his aka well i mean yeah i know it's the same thing potato potato i just wanted to uh clarify that i I apologize and even though our podcast is a just for fun show yeah we still always strive to be as accurate as possible especially when it comes to true crime right which we take more seriously than some of our other more fun topics excuse me speak for yourself i take bigfoot and aliens very seriously i take them very seriously too but if i accidentally call bigfoot by the wrong name not gonna feel as bad yeah i mean big peter people too but hey are Um, they i'm are they people you know that's for another episode let you know i don't want to get into this with you right now let's not start a fight before the episode (laughs) okay so i think i what at the time i thought mistakenly called him Natavi Dodd mm-hmm. and and that was correct that was actually the correct name so yes. his name was actually Natavi Dodd Corona yes and and we put that on our Instagram photos yeah. that we put up so yeah so okay well thank you for that apology I will gladly accept it next time no apologies for me you should throw that martini in my one face one and only apology that you get I'll ever one get from you. Okay. no matter no matter how many times I'm wrong you get one I'll take that one and you should throw that drink in my face but then you'd waste the drink yeah I would never do that because it's too delicious <laughs> all right so on that note, let's get into this case. It is a weird case this week. It's weird. It's bizarre. You know, I have a thing for missing persons. I find them so fascinating just because it's like, where the fuck did they go? And it's local. It is local. That is true. It is a local case. So I'm going to start off with my sources. Um, journalist Benji 
Egel from the Sacramento Bee did a wonderful two-part article um, by the name of Out in the Cold, Four Mentally Disabled Men Died in the Woods, But What Happened to the Fifth? So I used that for my main source and then Wikipedia just to, like we normally do, kind of check the timeline and other um, bits that maybe the article didn't cover. Like I said, this is a is a weird case and not a lot of people know about it. Even, and I, I don't really know why, we can talk about that at the end, but with this case, even when you think you get answers, you'll only be left with more questions. It's still considered unsolved and remains open to this day. The current Yuba County Sheriff's Department let Benji Eagle from the SACB look at all the evidence as long as he didn't take any or take pictures. So the main source from this article that he wrote, the two-part series in the SACB, was based on the evidence that is still with the Yuba County Sheriff's Department. That's amazing that he had access to that. Yeah. So I'm actually, this was a, a wonderful article. Obviously, I didn't cover everything. I suggest reading it if you're interested in this case because it, it's a it's a wonderfully written article. And I'm going to start with his opening to that article. I'm going to read his opening because it's just so good. A Northern California drought broke hard in February 1978, blanketing rural areas of the state in sheets of snow. As if Yuba County residents needed another reason to stay inside, radios and TVs were spewing real-life crime drama. First, with filmmaker Roman Polanski's escape to France in the face of an impending statutory rape sentencing. Then, when a murder suspect that went by the name of Ted Bundy was arrested in Florida after twice escaping from Colorado authorities. And by the end of the month, the grisly story dominating the airways was one from their own backyard. I don't know if you've heard of Ted Bundy. Nope. Never <laughs> heard of him. Or Roman Polanski. <laughs> Okay, so exactly 42 years ago, almost to the day yesterday. Yesterday it was to the day, but today's not, not yesterday. yesterday. <laughs> so almost oh to the day. Oh my gosh. We've done that twice in a row now and it's so crazy. Isn't it wild? In 1978, a mysterious disappearance of five men rocked the small town of Marysville, California, which is located just 40 miles north of Sacramento. The town, the police, and their families referred to the five men who ranged from early 20s to early 30s as the boys. The five men were all developmentally delayed or mentally handicapped in some ways. So during this episode, I'll refer to them sometimes as the boys and sometimes as the men. They were technically in age men, but maybe mentally um, by their friends and family were considered the boys just because they were developmentally delayed in some way one way or another that's also kind of a term of endearment yeah it is I felt like it was it was a term of endearment children it wasn't them. the boys in a belittling way it was like you definitely. know the good old boy the boys you yeah, know definitely the boys met through gateway project an organization for adults with special needs and they became fast friends and were inseparable most of the time here's a quote from Jack Beecham the undersheriff in 1978 they were kind of described as studs of their community, you know, the special needs folks. They were athletic and very well liked and very well respected. They were nice kids, nice people. 
So I'm going to get into a little bit about who the boys were and their background. So we'll start off with Ted Weir, who's 32. He loved making friends. He was very social. And according to his, but according to his family, he lacked basic common sense. So for example, one time he spent a hundred dollars on pencils for no apparent reason. He just bought a hundred dollars worth of pencils. They're probably really cool pencils in his defense. I mean, I think they must've been, you remember those holographic ones with the neon erasers? I bet that's what they were. I think they were. He would question simple instructions like stopping at a stop sign or one time his parents' house caught on fire when they were all sleeping and as the roof burned above him, Ted laid in bed watching the flames and when his brother Dallas went in to try to get him out of bed, he said, leave me alone. I have to rest for work tomorrow. Not really aware of the danger that was, you know, going to burn his house down and him. Dallas ended up dragging him from the house Uh, And he was okay. They were all okay. But he would also do things like wake up in the middle of the night and wake up his brother and ask things like, why can Mickey Mantle hit a ball farther than me? And one thing about each of these men um, is there was not an official diagnosis in the news report. So I, I don't know if it was before the time of like the blanket diagnosis of just like slow a lot, a few of these boys sound like they were on the autistic spectrum before autism was a diagnosable thing. Um, so this is back in the seventies. So maybe I don't think really autism was a diagnosis then. Probably not. And that brings us to Jack Hewitt, 24. He was the most severely handicapped out of the group. His father said he couldn't read and he couldn't write. And he relied heavily on his mother and his best friend, Ted for help. He didn't like to be away from home for extended periods of time, especially not overnight. He actually had a heavy speech impediment and didn't really like to be uh, without his mom. And next we have Bill Sterling, 29. He used to be a dishwasher at Bill Air Force Base, but his mother made him quit once she found out that the airmen were routinely getting him drunk so they could steal his money rude oh, very rude just get drunk you don't need to steal money not nice yeah just get him drunk because it's, it's fun exactly yeah. so bill ha- his family had a cabin uh, at bucks lake in the plumas national forest and he would go there fishing with his family um, and they would you know take annual trips there but after a while he didn't like the forest he didn't like being out in the wilderness he didn't like fishing really so he started to stay home after they when they would go on their annual trips just because he didn't really like camping or staying at the cabin so the night he vanished he had $15 allowance a map of California a map of Sacramento a map of Stockton and a map of San Francisco on his person well prepared yes for anything really and it sounds crazy to say that now but Back then, if you didn't know where you were going, you had a map. Yeah. <laughs> you, or maybe he just liked to, it was his way of controlling his environment is to keep maps on his person just in case. Just in case. But you would definitely need them for directions. You couldn't just look it up while you were driving. Yeah. Google. Yeah. Where is, I don't know, where is Plumish National Forest? And that brings us to Jack Madrugal, 30. 
He worked as a dishwasher at Sunsweet Growers, a local dried food company. And I'm going to use direct quotes from the article that family members told police. Quote, not mentally retarded in the common sense of retardation, merely slow in his thought process. End quote. Obviously that we don't use those words anymore. Um, but that was a direct quote. So, um, he, Jack could manage his own finances. He was actually a truck driver in the army from 66 to 68. And he was one of two of the men who had a driver's license and Jack actually owned a car. Wow. Yeah. And that brings us to the fifth and final member is Gary Mathias. He was 25 and he was a singer in a local band. He played football at Marysville High School in the 60s. And he also served in the army. Um, He had his driver's license and he worked as an assistant gardener at his stepdad's landscaping business. So we have Ted, Jack Hewitt, Bill Sterling, Jack Madrugal, and Gary Mathias. Those are the five men who disappeared. Okay. The boys loved basketball. They played in the Special Olympics and also followed college basketball. That's impressive. Yeah. They met through the um, program they were in, and that's how they got into playing basketball for their Special Olympics, actually. Wow. So the night of the disappearance, they went to Chico to watch their favorite basketball team, the UC Davis basketball team versus Chico basketball team. The men's parents had tried to discourage them from going to the game in Chico because they had an early basketball game in Rockland the next morning, which they weren't going to miss. It was through the program. It was part of the Special Olympics. And I even think that there was supposed to be a celebrity guest there. Oh, so it was a big deal. It was a big deal and they would not have missed it. But the men were determined to go see their favorite team play. So they went and they saw the game. UC Davis won. Their team won. And after watching UC Davis beat Chico State, and just before 10 p.m., they stopped at a popular convenience store in Chico and loaded up on snacks for the ride home. This was the last time that anyone would see them alive. By the early morning hours of Saturday, February 25th, the morning after they left for Chico, all the boys' parents were extremely worried. They started to call one another and ask if the boys were at each other's homes. And when they all realized that the boys weren't there, they contacted the police and the search got underway. Now, police canvassed the route from Marysville to Chico and Chico back to Marysville. Now, this route was only what would you say, 40 miles, an hour drive at the most. Yeah, it's about an hour. And it's a straight shot north. Yes. On It's an easy drive. Up 99. Yes. Right? Or 70. Either way. 70 to 99 if you're from Marysville. Okay. So they took 70 to 99 from Marysville to Chico, and it's Mm -hmm. a straight shot, simple highway. Yes. Police put out broadcasts throughout Northern California with the men's pictures and the circumstances of which they disappeared. The search effort produced no leads. Then on February 28th, Jack Madruga's 1967 Mercury Montego was found by a U.S. Forest Service worker. It was parked at the snow line 40 miles east 
of Chico in the foothills of Orville in the Plumas National Forest. The car was empty except for snack wrappers and a quarter tank of gas. Investigators didn't find the keys, but when they hotwired it, it started right up. Which means with the keys, it would have started right up. Yes. It didn't appear to be stuck mm-hmm. um, because it was in the snow, but it didn't appear to be unmovable. And what- even if it was slightly stuck, they were five strong men. strong men that could have dug it out, I'm sure, and helped get it out. Yes. One thing to note, the car... Jack's pride and joy was fairly undamaged, which was interesting to investigators because it was a heavy car and it was loaded with five guys in fine five grown men inside the car, which weighed it down even more. And the road was mostly traveled by logging trucks, which led investigators to wonder if whoever was driving knew the road well enough not to damage the car on a dark, bumpy road, not particularly built for low cars. Which seems like, I mean, have you ever, I'm sure you've driven on a logging truck before. It beats the hell out of your car if it's not a high profile car. You mean on a logging road? Did I say logging truck? Yeah, but I liked it. (laughs) I always ride in logging trucks for one. (laughs) And for two, I have driven on a road that was frequented by logging trucks and it was terrifying. Mm -hmm. On my way to Truckee. Mm Mm-hmm. The road was so windy and it was snowy and these huge logging trucks were riding beside me, hogging up this tiny windy road and I hated it. Yeah. They're awful. They're usually dirt. They're heavily rutted. There's usually stones and rock. There's washouts. I yeah. Mean, it's, it's Wherever it's, they're bringing the trees back from, it's not a... It's not paved. It's not easy access. Yeah. No. The weird thing about this is Jack never let anyone drive his car. But Jack's parents also said that he didn't have any particular draw to this road or this area. He didn't know anyone in the area and he wasn't familiar with it. They basically drove 40 miles in the wrong direction. Right. In a way that had to be intentional. There's no way that you could do this on accident. You couldn't make five wrong turns and end up here. It's like, it's very strange. So... And they also had maps. Right. It's weird and it's only going to get weirder. Okay. Investigators immediately started looking for the five, sifting through snowbanks, dogs, horses, helicopters, all turned up nothing more than 6,000 combined hours spent searching. So I looked this up because I was interested and I was like, okay, you have these scent dogs. Obviously, their like noses are a million times better than humans, mm-hmm. but does snow exactly? That was my question. So, snow. If it was a newly fallen snow, it could have dampened the scent of the men, which it was snowy. That makes sense because I know that you can't track in water either. Yeah. So you um, sometimes, and also in warm environments, it's easier for the scent to linger. It's like a stronger, it makes it louder, quote unquote, mm-hmm. louder, if you will, the scent to the dogs. Yeah. Um, but in colder environment environments, it can be tougher to track a scent, especially in newly fallen snow. Oh man. So it was like the worst case scenario to go missing. Right. Right. Now, I know where this is. I've been to this area before. I used to go um, nearly every year and cut down a Christmas tree up on these logging off these logging roads. Um, it's 
pretty far out there. And isolated. Yeah, totally isolated. And in the opposite direction they were going. And it's not, like we said before, a really road that you would take by accident. You're also familiar kind of with this area, right? A little bit, yeah. You used to go to Bucks Lake. Yes, I, I'm semi kind of familiar with Bucks Lake. I mean, it's kind of weird that I would say three out of the five men didn't prefer camping or the wilderness, and they end up on this snowy logging road. On your way to Bucks Lake. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The only reason to really take that road is to go to Bucks Lake, but the people in the situation didn't have any reason to want to go to Bucks Lake. No. They were actually like anti-nature. Yeah. So it seems, it's it's like, why? Why? It's like, did they... I just want to find the guy at the convenience store or somebody that they sat next to at the basketball game. Well, the guy at the convenience store clearly remembers them because they were kind of rowdy. Yeah. They had just come off a win. I picture them very like tall too because they're basketball players and just happy and having a great time. Yeah. They were, he said that they were rambunctious. He actually think remembered being annoyed because they were (laughs) so excited. They had come in, you know, this group of big old guys, they're, favorite team just won they're heading back down to marysville and they're gonna get up in the morning and they're play. so stoked yeah and he's just like get your snacks and go on and get <laughs> but he specifically remembered, he remembered them, them mm-hmm. and he didn't overhear them mm-hmm. he couldn't give any more clues other than they were there getting snacks oh my gosh it's so frustrating i know at this so at this point investigators were desperate to find the men they even consulted a psychic the psychic said she saw bodies in green canvas bags and next they consulted a dowser or a water witch but um a body witcher so someone yeah so someone who finds water with a magical rod Mm -hmm. they also can use that to find bodies or grave sites okay future episode idea yeah We've done psychic solving crimes. We have not done water witchers or body witchers. Oh my gosh. This is fascinating. Yeah. They're called, they're known as a dowser. Oh, like the dowsing rod. Yeah. Okay, cool. Wow. So they brought in this man who, uh, had a magical rod and his magic (laughs) rod. I mean, (laughs) I can't say magical rod without thinking. We're 12 years old. Yeah. Seriously. Sorry for the penis jokes. <laughs> it's happy hour. Penis jokes are going to uh, fucking happen. Yes. <laughs> so his magical rod pointed to an empty cabin with no... I'm trying to get through this sentence and, and so be serious. Sorry. One more time for good measure. His magical rod pointed to an empty cabin, but it led to no clues. Strangely, a tip came in from a man who said he was scouting a campsite the night the boys drove up. So he was staying at a lodge mm-hmm. that was oh, about eight miles down the hill from where the car was found. Mm-hmm. And he drove up from that lodge the same night the boys were there. He said he was scouting a campsite for his wife and his daughter for the next weekend. At night, which is the best time to find a campground. Right. If you're a this vampire. Was like midnight. Yeah, that that's, doesn't make any sense. But okay. Right. Well, I mean, it didn't, didn't specify what time he originally started. But by the time it got dark, he was stuck in the snow and he went to get out of his car to push it and had a fucking heart attack. This guy is the unluckiest man alive. Seriously. So he had a heart attack and then he couldn't push his car out of the snow because clearly heart attack. Yeah. So he got back in his car and he left it running with the heater on trying to wait out his heart attack and not die. So he said 
that while he was in his car, he saw six or seven shadowy, shadowy figures outside of his car. Mm -hmm. And he said that he called out for help twice, but when he did that, he said the figures went still and turned off their lights. Hmm. So I don't know if it was headlights or flashlights. I don't think the men had flashlights with them. So maybe it was their headlights, but also he admitted to having hallucinations from the heart attack, like a symptom from a heart attack could be hallucinations. I was going to ask that if you have a heart attack, are you really the best eyewitness? Probably not. No, I don't think so. He, he, I think it can induce some kind of hallucinations because he also said that he saw five men figures with a woman and a baby that night on that road. Weird. Yes. But nothing ever came from his tip. And they actually doctors, police had doctors do an EKG to, mm-hmm. to prove if he did have a heart attack. And in fact, he did have a heart attack. That sucks. Yeah. So he recovered. He's fine. Eventually his car ran out of gas. So he slept the night in the car, survived, mm-hmm. got out the next morning and went to walk back eight miles down the hill to the lodge he was staying at. And 150 feet away, he found their car in the middle of the road. Mm. Empty. Gone. Creepy. Yeah. So he was 150 feet away from these men. So he was actually close to them. So he could have seen them. It's not out of the question, but we just don't know. We just don't know. Okay. So nothing came from this guy's tip. They couldn't. They they investigated him but didn't find any foul play. It's mm-hmm. just heartbreaking that he was 150 feet away. Could he have been any help? He was in the middle of a heart attack. Maybe not. But if they would have all stayed together till the next morning. Yes. So more than three months went by and no sign of the men. Oh it's God. as if they walked into a snowy night and vanished into thin air. On June 4th of the same year, after the snow had melted... A group of bikers were taking a ride in the Plumas National Forest when they came upon an abandoned Forest Service outpost. As they pulled up, they noticed that a window had been broken out and they were suddenly overtaken by the strong smell of death and they called the police. Tree crews spent half a day clearing trees from the road just to get to the abandoned trailer. Once they entered, they found empty cans of food, wood furniture, extra clothing, paperback books, and Ted Weir's body. Candles had been recently lit and 31 cans of food were found open and eaten. They actually were opened with an army P38 can opener, which needs a certain expertise to use. Expertise only Gary, Matthias, and Jack Madruga, who were both in the army, would have had. Ted's leather shoes were missing and Gary's tennis shoes were found inside the trailer. This is heartbreaking. It is. Because Gary's tennis shoes were found inside the trailer, that led investigators to believe that Gary was inside the trailer long enough to switch shoes. So Ted was the only one found at this point. He was the only one in the trailer. And he was found laying on a bed covered under eight sheets with his arms on his chest. Eight sheets? He had he was covered with eight sheets, covered up with eight sheets. He had his pants pulled up to his knees. His ring inscribed with Ted was on the nightstand, also along with his wallet, and also a gold watch that none of the parents recognized. Now, they did a analysis of Ted's beard hair, 
and they found that the growth, he had been there for at least six weeks in that trailer. Like his, he had been alive at least for six weeks after they went missing because that's how long his beard had grown. They also noticed that he had lost a considerable amount of weight. He was at least 200 pounds when he went missing. He had lost 80 to 100 pounds. Oh my God. Um, and he had, uh, they found that he had died from basically exposure. He had blood poisoning from um, frostbite, which led to gangrene, which led to blood poisoning. And he had lost five toes <gasps> at that point when oh they found God. him. Oh my God. Yeah. Terrible, terrible, terrible way to die. So let's talk about this trailer and this forest outpost for a little bit. Um, okay. Because I do think it's important. Now at this outpost, they found that Ted had died from exposure and he had covered up with eight sheets, mm -hmm. but there was plenty of material to burn in that trailer to start a fire. And they, they found no evidence at any point had he tried to start a fire for warmth. Also, there was never a fire set at all in, in the trailer no, for warmth. There was books, there was paper, there was clothing, there was wood, there was stuff. Was in there fire starter material? Was there a lighter or matches? I believe so. It didn't say specifically, but it was a fully stocked trailer. Also, there was a propane tank that could have been hooked up to a heater to the trailer that was never hooked up. Now, you have to consider who these men were and who Ted was. It's it, it said that Ted didn't have common sense. And, and also, setting up a propane tank and doing all of that was probably just out of his scope. Yeah. He was frantic. He was cold. terrified. He was sick. He probably wouldn't even have considered setting up a propane tank. I can't really blame him for that. Would I? Would yeah. I consider setting up a propane tank? I probably tank? wouldn't either. I, I'm not sure. I probably wouldn't either. I'd probably just try to start a fire. Yeah. So now also there was two containers at this outpost. One of the containers had been broken into, which contained the canned food that they found in the trailer. Uh, he had gone through the canned food. The Sadly, the container next to it wasn't opened. It wasn't broken into. It contained enough food to sustain all five men for at least a year. God, that's awful. So there's a lot of speculation about, you know, whether they had the common sense or awareness to hook up the propane tank um, and about the food. Their family said that they were the type of men who wouldn't, willingly touch something that didn't belong to them. So there is a kind of a speculation saying that, okay, maybe they just felt that they were breaking and entering and it was, you know, it was really black and white. Like those were against the rules. Breaking into someone's belongings is against the rules. We're not going to do that. Maybe they were delirious and just missed it. Maybe they thought that they checked everywhere and missed a spot and didn't see the food. Maybe they didn't realize what the food was because by then they were so exhausted and hungry and cold and sick that they didn't realize what they were looking at. Yeah. I tend to think that maybe they just, you know, tough conditions. It's snowy. You're starving. You have, you're scared. You, you're, you have frostbite. Yeah. You know, it's, would I have the awareness to break into everything? I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know either. It's easy to say like, why didn't they do this? Or I would have done that. But until you're in that situation and you're suffering in these ways and you're going through these extreme circumstances, you really don't know. Absolutely. I think, you know, even being on the, I'm not in the position to diagnose anyone by any means. I just have a hunch because, uh, 
I have a brother who's autistic. He's on the spectrum. He's very high functioning. And it's just seeming like a lot of these men might have been on the spectrum and just had not been diagnosed yet. Or, you know, maybe 30 years later, they would have been diagnosed or today's day, they would have been diagnosed on the spectrum. But, you know, I'm thinking at some point, I think would survival kick in like the will to live? Would it kick in? I I don't know. What for me, I don't even know. So I think putting their diagnosis or their mental disabilities aside, I don't think anybody would know what to do in that situation until they're in that situation. Exactly. And maybe you have a great point. Maybe there was no access to a fire starter. Yeah. They didn't hook up the propane, so they didn't have. I don't even know if I would honestly trust myself to hook up a propane tank to a trailer. I, I, I can barely trust myself to hook up a propane tank to a fucking barbecue. Yeah, I know. And half the time I'm like, am I going to blow up right now? I mean, blow and torch, I know forget about it. I know it sounds ridiculous, but in, if you're already terrified, you don't want to add any sort of unknown element to your situation. Exactly. Like people will always choose the devil that they know, exactly. right? Exactly. And I'm thinking my half, literally half of my toes are frozen off. Yeah. Am I going to go outside again? Yeah. Fuck no. No. So... Jack Madruga and Bill Sterling were found two days later, eight miles closer to the car. Oh my God, that's still so far. And by the way, this trailer camp, this forest Mm -hmm. service camp was nearly 20 miles from their car. It was 19.6 miles from their car. So they had walked, at least Ted had walked 19.6 miles from their car to this outpost. Which had to have taken days. Yeah. In the there's, snow. There's no way that was a straight line either. No. Jack Maduga and Bill Sterling were found two days later, eight miles closer to the car on opposite sides of the road. Nothing but scattered bones were left of Bill and Jack Madruga's body was dragged to a nearby stream by animals. His car keys were still in his pants pocket. It was determined hypothermia slash exposure was, cause, was the cause of death for Jack Madruga. Bill Sterling's death couldn't be determined because of the state of his remains. So what I want to know is, did they all make it to the trailer? And then Jack and Bill decided to walk back to the car because Jack was the only one who could drive out of, well, one of the only ones who could drive out of the group. So did they all make it to the trailer? And Ted said, I'm good here. You go back to the car. And then they just never made it back to the car. Or did they stop on the way to the trailer? And we'll never know. There was no other evidence in mm-hmm. the, except for the one shoes. Yeah. So Jack Hewitt, the mm-hmm. other boy that they, uh, the other man, excuse me, that they hadn't found yet. They were still, the search party was still on because at this point they're looking for Jack Hewitt and Gary Matthias. Mm-hmm. Jack Hewitt's father was warned not to help investigators on the rescue mission. But on June 8th, he saw what he thought appeared to be Jack's jacket near the trailer. When he went to pick up the jacket, Jack's spine fell out. <gasps> oh my God. Jack that was awful. It terrible. Terrible. Jack Hewitt was later identified by his skull and teeth found about 50 feet near his jacket and spine. So by June 8th, four of the five men had been found. I just can't imagine what these families and these parents were going through. This is the worst case scenario. It is the worst case. As a parent, I just, I empathize with them so deeply. This is just tragic. It is horrible. It is horrible. 
Gary Mathias is still missing to this day. They never found his body. They never found him alive. They never found his remains. Nothing. It isn't known why they drove there, where they were going, or what they were doing to this day. So obviously we have one man that's not found, Mm -hmm. and that is Gary. And we're going to look into Gary a little bit because some of the theories Mm-hmm. of why this happened have to do with Gary Matthias. And these are just theories. These are just theories. These are just theories. Now, the Sackby article, a lot of uh, about Gary was in the article, which I'm assuming he got from the evidence. And it's, it's just my assumption only mm-hmm. because the article was, I, I'd say uh, the prevailing theory was that Gary Matthias had something to do with this because he was a little bit different than the other men. So the four men, Bill, Jack Hewitt, Jack Madrugal, and Ted were development, developmentally disabled. They were, the four of them were friends a lot longer. And then, um, Gary kind of joined the group. group. Yeah. Now Gary wasn't necessarily developmentally disabled. He was, um, diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. That's very, that's a very different diagnosis. Yes. It I is. wonder what the, was there any sort of a test or documentation or anything needed to be a part of this group that these boys were in? Well, that's a very good question. You know, I was thinking on the way over here, I was thinking, is there some kind of baseline for the special Olympics? Like, do you have to have an official diagnosis Mm -hmm. of like developmentally disabled? And I'm thinking back in the seventies, maybe you didn't today. Obviously you would. Yes. But I'm thinking in the seventies, probably not because there was still a lot of unknowns. Yes. So Gary was diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic. Um, He was also set apart from the other men in the way that he had run in with the law. The Mm -hmm. other men were law-abiding citizens, well-liked by the community. They were kind of popular in the community. Mm -hmm. Not only the um, Special Olympics community, but also just the community at large. Because they were athletes and... yeah. Yeah. Great, great guys. Yeah. And, Active. And Marysville in the 70s, even today, but Marysville in the 70s was an extremely small town. Yes. It was like probably considered some kind of like blip outpost. Yeah. You know, Gary had spent most of his childhood in a Napa insane asylum, now called Napa State Hospital. Wow. At one point, he escaped and hitchhiked back to Marysville while still wearing his hospital uniform can you imagine who picked him up it was the fucking wasn't even the 70s though it was like the 60s yeah he went crazy totally yeah uh while he was in the army he went AWOL from the army and when he was captured they put him in a jail cell and he stripped naked in his cell waited for the police to come in and when an officer came in he punched him in the face through the bars he was known to be violent, and he was also known to attack women. He what? actually, atta- yeah, he attacked his cousin's wife because he wanted a kiss. So his cousin walked in on Gary 
on top of his cousin's wife trying to kiss her against her will. What the fuck? Assaulting her. Yeah. Essentially. Wow. At one point, he moved to Oregon and stopped complete contact with his parents and then showed up on their doorstep a year later in shambles, claiming he walked from Oregon to Marysville. That's a long walk. That's a long walk. Oh, my goodness. So clearly he needed real help with his mental illness. Yes. And he was. He did get some help, I think, through um, probably the program that all the boys were involved in. I'm not sure. It's The program has been dismantled since, so I couldn't really call anyone and ask questions mm-hmm. um, about how they... You know, helped yeah. or if they if they offered those kind of services, but Gary did have access to meds, and he chose to go on and off his meds. That's not all right. So I got from the article um, that the prevailing theory from the article that I read was that Gary Matthias most likely had something to do with the disappearance. However, I have my own theory about that. I feel like the history on Gary, he went on and off his meds. Um, I think from then 1978 until now, or even in a decade after he would have popped up at some point, he would have been off his meds. If he went, you know, drew these guys, this was his escape plan for whatever reason. He, um, lured these guys to the forest, took off on his own, um, he would need access to meds at some point. And if he didn't have access to meds, he would have popped up in the criminal system. He would have been arrested again for something. He had a life of violence and different situations where he had been in in and out of trouble. He would have definitely been on somebody's radar by now. And he also was a, um, I don't know at the time of the disappearance, but he was a known psychedelic drug user. Um, That's another reason he was discharged from the army Mm -hmm. along with psych reasons. Um, But he did uh, had heavy psychedelic drug use while he was in the army. So that was like, there's a multiple reasons why he was discharged. One was psych. He was diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. And then one was he had um, uh, failed drug test on a drug test. Yes. Okay. So I think he would have popped up. I agree with you. With I think that he would have popped up mm-hmm. by now too. If he were still living, I think that somebody would have found him. I don't think that he had the the no the knowledge or the means to stay hidden for this long. I agree with that. And his poor family, the only one that's not found. Well, I don't know what's worse. Funny you should mention the family because sometime after the disappearance, unsolved mysteries actually contacted the family of these men and Ted's family, Bill's family, both Jack's family, uh, both Jack Hewitt and Jack Madrugal, all of them greenlit the project and said, we want to do it. It was actually Gary's family was the only one who refused to do it. So they never ended up making an episode because they wouldn't, didn't want to participate. And they've consistently not spoken to the media about it. So the community and also the journalist for this, the author of this article kind of insinuated, okay, that's, that's a little weird. You have a missing family member out there. Are they hiding something? Do they know that he's out there and they, you know, are hiding him or I don't know. So it's just, you know, there's other theories. Like there was a theory that a town bully Someone who was a bully that saw them at the basketball game, chased them up that mountain to kind of bully them. And then, you know, they kind of succumbed to the elements. That's a theory. That seems a little much to me. I I don't know. I guess the only way that Gary could 
still be out there is if a family member was harboring him. But that seems like a pretty unlikely scenario well, in my opinion. still need access to medication. Yes. And, um, you know, even if... And it, do they, if they still live in the same community, that would be nearly impossible to hide somebody. Right. It's Especially not a big city. Known, he was yes. known by the law enforcement and members of the community. Um, it's really hard to hide in a small town yeah. that you grew up in. You know, another angle is that it wasn't a malicious intent, but Gary served uh, during Vietnam. So it is very possible that he had combat experience and maybe he was not only suffering from P- um, paranoid schizophrenia, but also PTSD. So it could be that he got in a situation where he was stressed for whatever reason, maybe on the way back, and he led these men in in a state of confusion, led them up this mountain, and you know they succumbed to the elements totally without malicious intent. I think it's understandable that Gary's family didn't want to be involved in the Unsolved Mysteries project because mm-hmm. he was the only one not found, mm-hmm. and he also did have a kind of tumultuous background. Right. I think that they probably felt that their son would be maligned in some way right I mean yes but for me personally I feel like that would be all the more reason to speak out and say you know Gary it was turning his life around he really loved this group of boys he was working he was in a band he he wouldn't have done this we want to find him you just never know how the media is going to portray your person yeah that's true that's very true and maybe they also didn't want everybody to know about his mental illness Maybe it wasn't, maybe it was known in his circle, but maybe not widely known. Yeah. People were different about that sort of thing back then. I agree. People weren't open about it like they are now. I mean, and then there's that theory, they're not really a theory, but that, you know, I don't know how reliable the guy that had the heart attack was, but he said he saw a woman with a baby. I mean, what if there was a woman with a baby? I don't know. What if they pulled um, over to help somebody? And it was a... It was a trap. It was a trap. Yeah. And they brought that's, him up. That's a likely scenario, but it still doesn't answer why they were there in the first place. That is what we're walking away with is why were they even there in the first place? And nobody has any idea. Nobody has any idea. And it's been 42 years to the day. That's just so weird. Isn't it a strange, strange case? Yes. I just want to know why they went there. We'll never know. We'll never know. I don't think that's a question you can ask. The one, your one question when you meet your maker. I will. What happened to the Yuba County Five? I'll ask that one. You ask about Jean Bonnet. Okay. Would Deal. I do Jean Bonnet? Okay. I would either do Jean Bonnet or um, Madeline McCain. <gasps> oh, man. That's another who. We're going to have to get a third friend in here so we get all these answered. We definitely are going to have to start <laughs> com- campaigning for questions to ask. Yeah. So that is the strange and bizarre and very frustrating case of the Yuba County Five. You did a fantastic job. Thank you. Just want to say, not this story didn't get a lot of coverage. I mean, it did at the time. It, it went locally and then kind of blew up and went maybe internationally, maybe not. I'm not sure. I couldn't find any international not, articles. But, yeah. but you have to think Ted Bundy was going on, Roman Polanski. So I think, unfortunately, maybe because they were a marginalized group, they got overshadowed by, by all these serial killers, bigger true crime stories pick a day in the 70s and there was a serial killer active i think actually at this time the golden state killer might have been operating too which is also northern california so i think it unfortunately because these men probably came from a small town and they were marginalized 
group of people that they were overlooked and maybe it could have drummed up any leads, but I don't know. But then part of me thinks like, what a coincidence that guy was up there on that hill, 150 feet away from the car and he had nothing to do with it. Checking a campground in the dark. Yeah. So, but he did actually have a heart attack. So it's like, all right. And maybe he did scare them. Maybe, I don't know what state they were in. Nobody knows what state they were in. Maybe they were, you know, freaked out. Maybe they did. Maybe there was a woman and a baby. I don't know. Maybe they just wanted to go on an adventure and they were following a map just to see where they would end up. Maybe they misread one of the maps. It's just awful to think that all of this tragedy could have just come from taking one wrong turn. Yeah. That's an awful thought. Or looking at a wrong map. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's extremely bizarre. I'm going to post the map. Yes. Uh, on our Instagram, I'll post pictures of the men and I'll post a map of kind of where Chico is, where Marysville is and where their car was found and where they were found. They, at least Ted and Jack made it 19, almost 20 miles to that outpost in the snow uphill both ways. So crazy. It's wild. It is wild. So I don't know. Let us know your theory. What's your theory? Yeah. Do you have an opinion on this case after listening or had you heard about it before? Yeah. Do you have a theory? Yeah. It's a fascinating case. Yeah. Send us and I guess there's no wrong answers at this point, right? No, no. Unless we ever find the truth. It's, it's pretty open-ended. Anything, anything could have happened. Anything that led them to that. Map. It could have been anything that led them there. I think that's a good, pretty good place to leave it open-ended. For you listeners, yeah. send us your theories. We'll, send us your theories. We always post a new episode post on Instagram, so you can always comment there. You could send us an email at happyairgetsweird at gmail.com. You can send us a DM, slide into our DMs, feel free. Um, <laughs> or t- find us on Twitter. You could leave your theories on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you because, you know, there's a million and one theories out there. It could be anything. It could be aliens. It could be Bigfoot. It could be anything. It could be. But I don't think it is Maybe. because I, because I think that Bigfoot and aliens would be kinder. You never know. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed this story in this case today. I, for one, am a, always a fan of disappearances because I just want the, want to answer that age old question. Where are they? Where, why, why did this happen? And that's why they drive me crazy. Yeah. That's, Loose ends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for listening, everybody. We really, really appreciate it. We really do. We love doing this and we hope you love listening. So on that note, remember, as we carry on with this week, don't forget to hydrate, meditate, and masturbate. Cheers to that. Cheers to that. Cheers to that.